Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, December 20th, 2022. Uh, I do want to say a happy Hanukkah uh, to anyone listening who is celebrating. I've meant to say that two nights in a row now. Uh, well, this would be the third. Um, I've been writing it in the newsletter, but I haven't been actually saying it. I don't know how many people actually listen to these, but uh, there you go. I uh, also want to note, uh, for those of you who are listening rather than reading uh, this evening uh, or tomorrow morning or whenever you listen to it, uh, that it's about time for our holiday break, which is the time of year where I finally take a big, long break and forget about all the bad things that happened this year. Uh, and uh, that'll start after Thursday's roundups. So that'll be the last one uh, of this year. We will resume regular programming on uh, January 8th, barring any unforeseen developments. Uh, there will be a few things that come out here and there um, over the, the holidays. Uh, and I'm hoping, um, I, I think I said optimistically, I, I think it, it it's probably on track uh, that we'll have a uh, another new contributor uh, ready to start uh, in the new year. So uh, we'll be rolling that out. Uh, you know, as quickly as possible. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, let's get into the, the roundup as always. Uh, well, as always on Tuesdays, anyway, we start with a couple of anniversaries on December 19th, 1946, the Battle of Hanoi marked the start of the 1946-1954 First Indochina War. Uh, it began when Viet Minh forces bombed Hanoi's power plant. Under the cover of darkness, they began attacking French forces in the city. Uh, the Viet Minh eventually had to withdraw in the face of superior French numbers uh, in February 1947, though, of course, they would eventually win this war. The outcome was a partition of Vietnam into northern and southern zones, uh, which ended when North Vietnam won the Vietnam War, of course, uh, and, and the ouster uh, of French forces from the region to be replaced by the United States to, to great success, I assume. I, uh, I'll have to uh, read the next chapter in my book here. Uh, on December 19th, 1984, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and Chinese Premier Zhao Ziyang uh, signed the uh, Sino-British Joint Declaration in Beijing. The declaration set July 1st, 1997 as the date upon which the British government would turn control of Hong Kong, including Kowloon and the new territories, over to the Chinese government. On December 20-ish, uh, not 100% sure on this one, but around that time, uh, in 1192, Duke Leopold I of Austria imprisoned King Richard I, or Richard the Lionheart, of England, as the latter was returning home from the Third Crusade. Uh, Leopold had several grievances with Richard. He had been, Leopold himself, had been on crusade uh, and left uh, because Richard was treating him badly. Uh, was treating him like a king would treat a duke, and Leopold didn't like that very much. Uh, he felt he should, should have a, a somewhat raised status. Uh, his chief complaint, however, was that Richard had probably, it's still not proven, but probably arranged uh, the assassination of Conrad of Montferrat, uh, who was the proclaimed, had been proclaimed king of Jerusalem. He hadn't taken the throne officially yet. Uh, Richard had him bumped off. Uh, Conrad was Leopold's cousin, uh, and for political reasons as well as family reasons, he was uh, obviously a little.
Daniel put out that uh, he didn't wind up taking the throne of Jerusalem, uh, Pope Celestine III wound up excommunicating Leopold for this transgression, for uh, taking Richard captive. Uh, Leopold eventually turned Richard over to Holy Roman Emperor Henry the the Sixth, uh, who had his own uh, grievances with England. Uh, Celestine also excommunicated Henry, by the way. Uh, Henry, uh, though, needed money more than he needed to punish Richard for his grievances, uh, so he ransomed him back to England for the tidy sum of 150,000 marks, uh, a sum that really left England financially uh, in, in dire straits for some time afterward. Uh, also on December 20th, 1989, is the uh, anniversary of Operation Just Cause, the U.S. military invasion of Panama with the goal of removing dictator Manuel Noriega from power. Uh, publicly, Noriega, an erstwhile U.S. ally, had run afoul of the Reagan and then Bush administrations by playing both sides of the drug trade, uh, something he'd started doing alongside the U.S. as part of the Iran-Contra operation, it should be noted. Uh, theories abound as to the real justification for the the invasion from the Pentagon's desire to test out new military hardware, uh, Noriega's involvement with and therefore knowledge of Iran-Contra, uh, George Bush's political need to look tough uh, and shed his wimp label, uh, and Noriega's diplomatic outreach to countries like, uh, let's say, the Fidel Castro-led Cuba or the Sandinista-run Nicaragua. Uh, according to the U.S. military, its invasion killed just over 200 civilians, but more credible assessments put that figure somewhere between 500 and 3,000. Uh, on to the news in the Middle East. Uh, in Syria, the Syrian army is claiming that two of its soldiers were wounded in the overnight Israeli missile attack near Damascus, which we talked about in yesterday's newsletter. Uh, it's also acknowledging unspecified material damage resulting from the attack. Uh, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, meanwhile, says that three non-Syrian militia fighters, either members of Hezbollah or of a group affiliated with Hezbollah, were killed in the attack. You will note these are not mutually exclusive claims. Uh, it's just that the Syrian government may not be talking about the deaths of non-Syrians. Uh, an organization called the Syrian Network for Human Rights claims that it has obtained death certificates uh, for 547 people uh, who have been arrested or disappeared by the Syrian government since the start of Syria's 2011 Arab Spring uprising. There is no confirmation uh, that these are legitimate documents, um, and but but there have been claims, certainly, I mean, you could argue they're anecdotal, uh, but claims that thousands or even tens of thousands of people have been disappeared or otherwise detained by Syrian authorities since 2011, and a very large number of them have died in custody. This would certainly not contradict uh, those claims. I'm not saying it would necessarily corroborate them, but it certainly would not. Uh, uh, not do anything to contradict them. Uh, in Iraq, the Jordanian government on Tuesday hosted a French-organized conference called Baghdad II, bringing together regional and international actors to try to get a handle on the Middle East, and in particular Iraq's various challenges. Uh, without checking, and I really haven't seen any out results of this uh, this conference, uh, but I'm just going to assume that they fixed everything, uh, you know, figured it all out, all the problems are fixed. Congratulations, everybody, you did it. Uh, great job. Uh, let's move on. 
Uh, in Iran, there's a piece in World Politics Review from Emil Avdaliani, uh, who, uh, which examines or that examines the uh, modern iteration of a very old contest for regional influence. I'll just read you a couple of opening paragraphs. Iran and Turkey share a deep history, or a, sorry, Iran and Turkey share a history of deep rivalry spanning back centuries to the medieval age when they fought a series of expansionist wars in the Middle East. Nowadays, their comp- competition is much more subtle, but nevertheless covers increasingly more terrain. One such area of discord between the two is the South Caucasus. If Iran's moves over the last couple of months are any indication, Turkey's growing influence in the region, especially its alliance with Azerbaijan, has heightened Tehran's sense of unease. Ankara has substantially increased its position in the South Caucasus following the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Turkish-made drones spearheaded Azerbaijan's battlefield successes, while Turkish military intelligence proved to be similarly decisive. Ankara also trained Azerbaijani soldiers, installed a semi-official presence in the Russian-led peacekeeping mission monitoring the ceasefire in Nagorno-Karabakh, and signed an official treaty of alliance with Baku known as the Shusha Declaration. Greater influence in Azerbaijan provides a gateway for Ankara to extend its reach beyond the Caucasus, toward the Caspian Sea and further into Central Asia, especially Turkmenistan. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan recently visited Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, signing new economic cooperation treaties to strengthen ties. Iran now sees the prospect of an arc of Turkey-aligned states emerging as a powerful Turkic alliance along its northern borders. Uh, I'm guessing they're not too thrilled about that. Moving on to Asia and Afghanistan, the Afghan government has banned women from universities, a continuation of its systematic excision of women from virtually all public spaces. Since retaking power last year, the Afghan Taliban have, had already barred girls from attending middle and high school, so this latest step was probably just a matter of time. Uh, it means that women who are already in university or were hoping to attend are now out of luck unless they can manage to go abroad. This new step will further reduce the Taliban's already low chances of winning widespread international recognition, at least in the near term. Uh, Afghan officials did release two U.S. nationals who had been in Afghan custody on Tuesday, perhaps hoping to score some international credibility despite the university move. Uh, The U.S. State Department has not identified either American and insists that there was no corresponding prisoner release on the U.S. side, nor was any ransom paid. They're characterizing it as purely a goodwill uh, act on the part of the Taliban. There are apparently still... U.S. nationals in uh, Afghan custody, uh, though uh, I have not seen any indication or information as to their identities. Uh, In Pakistan, Pakistani security forces ended the hostage situation that we've covered in the last two uh, newsletters at a counterterrorism center in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province on Tuesday with a commando raid that apparently freed all of the hostages. Uh, Two Pakistani commandos were killed in the raid along with an unspecified number of the Pakistani Taliban fighters who seized the facility late Sunday evening. It is unclear if any of the hostage takers survived, but as I say, all of the hostages seem to have made it through okay. In China, there have been disconcerting reports from inside that country of authorities scrambling to add additional hospital beds and otherwise respond to and or prepare for a substantial wave of new COVID cases following the decision by the Chinese government earlier this month to phase out its zero COVID approach. Chinese authorities have have reported seven COVID-related deaths so far this week. Uh, That's the first of those that Beijing has acknowledged in several weeks. So uh, it may not seem like much, but in context it is. 
is. Uh, and while I have been reluctant to link to any of these several COVID surges through China pieces uh, that have appeared in Western outlets in recent days, uh, it stands to reason that shifting from maximum lockdown mode to let's try to live with it mode is going to trigger a major increase in COVID spread. Uh, you might think that this turn of events would be seized upon by the United States as proof of Beijing's manifest failure to manage the pandemic and the flaws of the Chinese system or whatever new Cold War language you want to insert there. However, because China remains such an integral part of the global economy, the reaction in the West seems largely to be one of trepidation, especially as the World Bank issues ever gloomier forecasts for China's growth rate. On top of the economic issues, there are public health concerns. A major new wave or multiple waves of COVID in China uh, creates a lot of potential for the virus to mutate into new and ever more exciting variants. Uh, there also appears, or there appears to be some appetite in the West to offer assistance to China. But at this point, there's no indication as to how much, uh, if any, aid the Chinese government would be interested in accepting. In Oceania and Fiji, there's another uh, update on Fiji's election. The next government of Fiji will feature a new prime minister. A three-party coalition led by Sitiveni Rabuka's People's Alliance Party will take power in the next session of parliament. Uh, Rabuka was able on Tuesday to close the deal with the Social Democratic Liberal Party, which adds its three seats to the 26 seats already controlled by the People's Alliance and National Federation Party Coalition, uh, and giving the, the new three-party coalition a slim majority in the 55-seat legislature. Uh, incumbent Frank Bainimarama will find himself out of power for the first time since his successful coup against the then-civilian government back in 2006. Uh, it's unclear what Rabuka offered the Social Democrats for their support, but the makeup of his forthcoming cabinet may offer some indication of what, what it was. Uh, in Africa, Burkina Faso, the ruling junta there, rejected on Tuesday the allegation that it has turned over a gold mine to Russia's Wagner Group private military company in return for counterterrorism assistance. As you may recall, the president of Ghana, Nana Akufo-Addo, made that allegation last week. We talked about this on in Wednesday's newsletter of last week uh, during the U.S.-Africa summit in Washington. Akufo-Addo said something about Wagner being given control of a mine in southern Burkina Faso, but of course. According to the junta, no mine in that part of the country has been conceded to any Russian interest. The junta did recently give a Russian company control, operational control over a mine in Burkina Faso's center nord region, uh, but the firm in question has been doing business in Burkina Faso uh, for quite some time, and there is no obvious link between it and Wagner apart from both of them being Russian firms. Uh, notably, though, the junta has yet to address the other part of Akufo Addo's allegation, which is the part about whether it's con contracted Wagner uh, to offer counterterrorism assistance. Apparently, they, they don't necessarily want to talk about that, which is interesting in itself. Uh, in Ghana, speaking of which, uh, the uh, Ghanaian government has called a halt to all debt service payments and uh, what it is calling an interim emergency measure, because that sounds better than calling it a default. Uh, Ghana and the International Monetary Fund reached preliminary agreement on a $3 billion bailout loan last week. We talked about this in the newsletter. And part of that bailout program will involve restructuring the terms of Ghana's debt. So this is sort of a first step uh, in that direction. In Nigeria, uh, The Intercept's Nick Terse has a piece uh, reporting that the Pentagon 
has apparently missed a deadline to respond to a congressional inquiry regarding its role in a deadly 2017 airstrike in Nigeria. Uh, read you just the first couple of paragraphs of his piece. In September, the Protection of Civilians in Conflict Caucus called on Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to disclose details of the U.S. role in the January 17, 2017 airstrike on a displaced persons camp in Ram, Nigeria. While the Nigerian Air Force expressed regret for carrying out the attack, uh, which also seriously wounded more than 120 people, uh, it was referred to as an instance of U.S.-Nigerian operations in a formerly secret U.S. military document first revealed by The Intercept in July. Uh, The caucus asked Austin to turn over the nearly six-year-old investigation into the airstrike and answer a series of questions concerning the attack and U.S.-Nigerian military operations within 90 days. That deadline expired almost two weeks ago. So, uh, you know, they might want to get on that or, or not. Who knows? In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, at least nine people were killed, eight of them children, in an attack on a village in the eastern DRC's Ituri province on Monday. Three people were wounded. Uh, uh, Two are still missing. Local officials are suggesting that the attackers were members of the Zaire militia, which is an ethnic uh, Hema militant group that sometimes carries out attacks against members of the rival Lendu community. Elsewhere, the United Nations Security Council voted unanimously on Tuesday to extend the UN's peacekeeping operation in the Democratic Republic of the Congo for at least another year. Congolese officials have been talking about winding down the unpopular UN presence in the country in 2024, so it's possible that this will be the last time this operation is renewed, at least at its current size. Uh, The council also partially lifted its embargo on arms going to the DRC. They're they're now permitting member states to supply weapons and otherwise uh, provide military support to the Congolese government without seeking permission. The provision of such support to non-governmental militant groups is, of course, still banned. Uh, The Congolese government has been calling for such an adjustment uh, to this policy for some time now. In Europe, we will start with the European Union, whose members agreed on Monday to adopt a cap on natural gas prices, uh, which will go into effect if the European benchmark gas price, this is pipeline uh, gas, rises above 180 euros per megawatt hour for three days and is uh, 35 euros per megawatt hour or more over the similar benchmark for liquefied natural gas. At that point, if that if the, those set of circumstances uh, do coalesce, then the price will be capped to stay within that uh, 35 euro per megawatt hour range uh, compared with the LNG benchmark. So it will still float, but it'll float uh, in direct, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, directly, you know, tied to, uh, sorry, to the LNG benchmark. Uh, the cap uh, had been opposed by the German government in particular, but uh, apparently Germany dropped its uh, resistance. It will take effect in February. Uh, and last for one year, during which time European governments will be looking to restock uh, their natural gas supplies ahead of uh, the 2023-2024 winter. Uh, Already, uh, this plan has drawn uh, criticism uh, from one of Europe's largest gas suppliers, Algeria, whose importance to European energy markets has significantly increased due to the war in Ukraine and its impact on Russian gas exports. 
speaking of Ukraine, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spent Tuesday in Bakhmut, the eastern Ukrainian city that has been the focus of uh, offensive Russian military activity for several weeks now, but nevertheless remains under Ukrainian control. Uh, his visit can be interpreted as thumbing his nose at the Russians. Uh, and so can Zelensky's apparent plan for Wednesday, which is to fly to the United States to meet in person with U.S. President Joe Biden and potentially attend a special session of Congress. Zelensky hasn't left Ukraine since the Russian invasion began. So if this does actually come off, it would send a message about his comfort level in terms of where the Russian war effort currently stands. I say if because security concerns could easily quash this trip at any point. Uh, to welcome Zelensky, the Biden administration rolled out a new $1.8 billion military aid package on Tuesday that will include a Patriot air defense missile battery. That unit will first be sent to Germany, uh, where U.S. personnel will train the Ukrainians in how to operate it. Uh, in Sweden, as you might have expected, the Swedish Supreme Court's decision, which we covered in yesterday's newsletter, to block the extradition of journalist Bülent Kanesh to Turkey has not been well received by the Turkish government. Go figure. Uh, Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Çavuşoğlu characterized the ruling as, quote, a very unfavorable development, end quote, on Tuesday, which I'm guessing is not the kind of thing the Swedish government wants to hear from the country that will determine whether or not Sweden is allowed uh, to join NATO. Uh, extradition is usually a political rather than legal question. But that said, uh, the Swedish Foreign Ministry has... Uh, contended that it is bound to adhere to the court's ruling, and it would be a major, uh, let's say, rule of law violation were the Swedish government to just ignore the court ruling uh, and extradite Kenesh anyway. Uh, he is obviously uh, very wanted heavily by the Turkish government, it was mentioned uh, by name by Erdogan uh, during a meeting with Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson, uh, as we cover, as I mentioned in, in yesterday's newsletter last month. Uh, so this is not going to grease the wheels, let's say, uh, for Sweden to get past the Turkish roadblock and, and get into NATO. Uh, moving on to the Americas and Peru, the Peruvian Congress reconsidered the idea of moving up the country's April 2026 general election on Tuesday, giving preliminary approval to a plan to hold that election in April 2024 instead. The measure has to be passed again by another two-thirds majority next year to take effect. Uh, it passed uh, with votes to spare. I think 91 uh, votes uh, needed 87 uh, to pass this time around. So it definitely cleared that hurdle. Uh, leftist parties had quashed an early election initiative last week in an effort to force a constitutional assembly instead, but they were apparently uh, convinced, let's say, over the weekend that they would never get their wish. Uh, so they might as well just back the early elections. Also on Tuesday, the Peruvian government expelled the Mexican ambassador in Lima over comments from the Mexican government that were deemed to constitute interference in Peruvian domestic affairs. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador has been highly critical of the ouster of former Peruvian President Pedro Castillo earlier this month, and his administration declared on Tuesday that it would offer asylum to members of Castillo's family who are currently holed up in the Mexican embassy in Lima. AMLO has offered asylum to Castillo himself but it seems unlikely, shall we say, uh, that Peruvian authorities would agree to release him. Uh, finally, in the United States, uh, if you missed it yesterday, please check out Michael Brennan's first foreign exchanges column uh, in which he assesses the future of U.S. foreign policy restraint in a post-Ukraine war world. 
Um, I, I will read you just a couple of uh, the opening paragraphs here. As one would imagine uh, from the introduction of the piece, as one would imagine, uh, George, he's talking about George Packer's essay in The Atlantic about liberal internationalism or liberal interventionism. As one would imagine, Packer's essay caused a stir, if not a visceral loathing among restrainers. But as historian Samuel Moyne tweeted, Packer's essay, while guy- gilding liberal internationalism for a rehabilitation of American primacy, reflected the reality that, that the old order cannot return after after the war on terror, quote, that a militarism first option of liberal warmongers can't simply be revived, end quote. Moreover, military options that characterize the war on terror are currently off the table. Preemptive invasion and occupation of sovereign nations, nation building in the Middle East, unipolar dominance by the United States. Due in part to the work of journalists like Asma Khan, drone strikes have decreased dramatically during the presidency of Joe Biden. Elements of restraint are also evident in the Biden administration's policy toward Ukraine. Ostensibly motivated by fear of nuclear escalation, Biden has rejected new Cold War hawks calls for a no-fly zone, sending certain high-tech weapons to Ukraine, and the prospect of a direct U.S. intervention in Ukraine. In dealing with great or failed states, Biden is operating in the shadow of the U.S. inability to remake the world, even as many national security figures wish this wasn't so. Alone or in their aggregate, these new realities do not comprise a foreign policy of restraint. Restraint must be instrumentalized for a new U.S. foreign policy. It is not the end in and of itself. As the war in Ukraine continues with no foreseeable end in sight, it provides restrainers with the means to envision and implement a post-war vision for the world. Restrainers must be critical of efforts to expand U.S. power in the short term, for for instance, a blank check to the Pentagon to fight the war, but must look to build an affirmative vision that relies upon international collaboration to reprioritize national security threats around issues such as climate change, migration, refugee policy, poverty, and global health, to deter imperial adventures by great powers and demilitarize the landscape of foreign policy options once the war ends. Uh, Really, please go check it out. Um, I think it's a good piece, and I'm I'm very happy to have Michael aboard. And um, on that note, uh, thank you. We're done for this evening. Thank you for reading and or listening to the newsletter. Uh, Thanks to those of you who are uh, subscribed, especially those of you who are paid subscribers. If you're not a paid subscriber, I know I make this pitch every time, but really, please consider it. Uh, I think, you know, we're doing good work here, but it it can only continue uh, with your support. And uh, we're running, I'm running a little... Uh, holiday discount right now, a little holiday special for the, the Christmas, Hanukkah, uh, Kwanzaa season, New Year's season. Uh, so it's a good time to do that. It's a good time to make the jump if, you're, if you've been thinking about it. So uh, yeah, please, please do if you can. Uh, and uh, uh, again, on that note, uh, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.